0: What's amazing about the human body is that it's really good at doing whatever you ask it to do. <laughs> so if you ask the human body to eat a lot of garbage food, not move very much, right. be relatively inactive, it will get really good at doing that. If you ask the human body to, uh, to, to move frequently, to move with intention, to eat well, mm. to be, uh, conscientious of, 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 of its, its place in space, it gets very good at doing that.
1: This episode of the Ben and Bikes podcast is brought to you by Dr. Squatch Natural Soap for Men. Let's face it, chaps, after a long day in the saddle, we stink. Now you can upgrade your shower game with Dr. Squatch Natural Soap. You want to smell like the forest, there's pine tar. You want to smell like the sea, there's nautical sage. And if you want to smell like you just got off a boat in the Caribbean, there's bay rum. Visit drsquatch.com that's D R S Q U A T C H dot for more detail. And now to this week's episode of Ben and Bikes.
2: You're listening to Ben and Bikes with your host, Ben Lockett. This podcast is about bikes but more about the people who ride them and their stories and less about frame size, shock technology, or even the Tour de France. This is Ben & Bikes, where every bike tells a story.
1: I'm going to be taking a month off from producing the Ben & Bikes podcast. Now that Colorado's high school cycling league is off to a great start, And I have to take care of that thing called a day job. During that time, I'm going to be replaying two of my favorite episodes. Today, an interview with New York chef, author and cyclist, Mr. Seamus Mullen, where we talk about his diagnosis of early onset rheumatoid arthritis and how he beat this with lifestyle change, diet and exercise. I look forward to producing a new episode in October. But during this time, I hope you have a great ride. This episode of the Ben and Bikes podcast is coming to you from the Bronx, and today's guest, Seamus Mullen, is an award-winning New York chef, author, and a leading authority on health and wellness, and a cyclist, but more on that later. Seamus trained in Spain, and as they say, one thing led to another, and he now operates two Spanish-influenced restaurants, Tertulia, English translation social gathering, and a tapas bar called El Comado. Uh, English translation, The Grocery Store. He is the author of Hero Food and Real Food Heals, the latter being described as a 125 paleo-inspired delicious recipes to revitalize your health every day. But there's a lot more to Seamus' story than that. Seamus and I met at a People for Bikes fundraising event at last year's Interbike trade show in Las Vegas. You might be interested in listening to an interview with Jen Dice from People for Bikes on episode 23. You can find this episode by visiting benandbikes.com. So what's the connection between a world-class New York chef and the Ben and Bikes podcast? In 2007, Seamus Mullen was diagnosed with early-onset rheumatoid arthritis. Some years after this diagnosis, Seamus found himself being described by an integrative doctor as a hot mess. Despite being at the top of the New York food chain, he was profoundly unwell, about 50 pounds overweight, in constant pain, and taking some serious meds. He'd been in this situation for about 10 years. As a result of, my, of a myopically planned diet, significant lifestyle changes, and reconnecting with his love of riding bikes, Seamus's path back to good health began. This, despite almost dying Twice. Uh, he says, as I got farther and farther away from the light, I regained consciousness. That's what it took for me to completely change my life, my diet, my fitness. Shit happens and you can either get in the way of your body or you can get out of the way. I knew something had to change or the next time I wouldn't survive. So with all that being said, Seamus Mullin, welcome to the Ben and Bikes podcast. Thank you, thanks for having me. Uh, not at all. Um, how did you get out of the way of your body?
0: Well, you know, it really started with me understanding what were some of the things that I was doing that, um, that were impeding my health.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What, were the, what were the obstacles that I was throwing up? And a lot of, a lot of what I realized is that I was really making excuses. Uh, I was living in this constant state of, of feeling like a victim, which I think is quite normal for people that deal with chronic illness. Um, I know it was for me. I, I definitely felt like I, I I didn't understand why I should have to go through what I was going through. Yeah. Um, but in doing that, there was a certain amount of alleviation of responsibility, too, because I was seeing myself as a victim. I wasn't really responsible for the situation I was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took a lot of work and a lot of um a lot of kind of introspective work as well to really understand that. Well, I wasn't the only responsible party in my ill health. There was a lot that I was doing that wasn't making me better. Um, and I, I remember reading an interview with uh, with a woman who, who had cancer, and she went to her doctor and said, "You know, I, I've been eating a Snickers bar every day for the rest of you know for, for my whole life. Right. Is this what gave me cancer?" Uh-huh. And and the doctor said, "Well." certainly eating a Snickers bar every day is not, not giving you cancer. Right. So the, it, changing my perspective a little bit uh, and understanding that that the, the, the situation I was in was not the result of any one cataclysmic event in my life, but rather uh, millions and millions of, of small tiny decisions that added up to being in a place of ill health. And uh, with the help of, of, of my doctor and my friends and my family, I was able to kind of understand that if there were millions of tiny decisions that added up to me being in a place of ill health, then it was going to take, and I was willing to do this, millions and millions of tiny positive decisions to get me to a place of better health.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm assuming though with rheumatoid arthritis, it's not like you wake up one day and you say, I've got rheumatoid arthritis. There are a whole bunch of other yeah. pieces that led up to that diagnosis, and mm-hmm. then you know beyond we can talk about, but how, how did you, what did, how did it start, and how did you learn about it, and what was that journey like?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's no different from 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 most. Outside of like a traumatic injury, uh, let's say you're overweight and you're 40 pounds overweight, you don't go from being an exceptional physical fitness one day to 40 pounds overweight the next day. Right. It's sort of a slow and lengthy process. And the same thing was true of, of RA. In my case, I was, you know, I went from being really fit in my teens and early 20s, being a competitive cyclist. Mm-hmm. Um, to focusing more and more on my career, working more and more, my body starting to get run down, feeling exhausted all the time, and just accepting that as being part and parcel of being a chef Clearly. and working in the industry. Right. Um, and, and that led to a series of, of kind of markers along the road where I would start to have these medical issues that were unexplained or or seemingly unexplainable. Um they, you know, they really focused around. General lethargy, fatigue, um, and then progressing into uh, into chronic um, kind of achiness, and then eventually very, very, very acute attacks in different joints. And that was kind of the that was what cued us off. And by the time I was having these multiple acute t- attacks in my joints, um, then it became clear there was something systemically wrong, mm-hmm. and and that's when I was eventually diagnosed with RA. But it took that took a long time. It took many years of just accepting not feeling well. And that was my baseline. I thought sort of thought it was normal not to feel well um, before I really got to a point that that I was able to recognize there was something severely wrong. Mm. And even once I had a, a diagnosis, it wasn't like that was a wake up call to make some global change in my life, but rather that just gave me an explanation. And that's where that's where like the 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 victim phase really started to set in.
1: Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that it took years to diagnose the problem, how long were we talking about for that diagnosis?
0: Well, I mean, I would say I was slowly uh, getting sick for maybe six or seven years. Ah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the last three, I was in and out of the hospital pretty frequently with, with regular visits without any, any kind of diagnosis. Ah. So yeah, it took quite a while. And mm-hmm. that's not uncommon. A lot of people who, the, the, one of the issues with, with chronic illness and chronic illness like RA or Crohn's. Um, uh, any of the autoimmune issues is that they often don't manifest themselves necessarily in some sort of physical, um, uh, uh, disfigurement. I mean, RA will eventually, um, in many cases, it will disfigure the joints in the hands. Um, but, but before that happens, you can look like a normal person who's not necessarily experiencing any, any pain, but on the inside, you can be completely suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the symptoms are so easily confused with other issues. I mean, general lethargy, fatigue, that's not, that could be any, any number of things. Um, so it, it, it really took, uh, kind of putting all the pieces of the puzzle together to realize that's what RA was. Um, and then even in that, even with the diagnosis, we live in a, we live in a, a, a culture where I call it transactional health, where we want to know the cause, and once we have the cause, then what's the right pill for, what's the transaction for yeah. fixing that? Yeah. Um, and I was very much stuck in that mentality for a long time, and it, it took me kind of getting outside of that way of thinking to, to really be able to turn my health around, to understand there wasn't any single cause that led to RA, but it was, it was, the, it was the combination of so many different factors in my life. Yeah.
1: Um. I was going to ask you this question a later on, but this this might be uh, a a good uh, point to ask it, which is, you know, uh, living in this country. I'm from the UK originally, mm-hmm. but living in this country, and I'm not saying the UK is any different than this, right? Yeah, um, is the fact, you know, that you know the, the food you eat, the, the lack of exercise, your weight, were were very much at the heart of what makes this country one of the most unfit and sick in the world. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself as some sort of, uh, not so as a crusader in terms of trying to change this situation in whatever small way that you can? Because the two are very, the, the, the sickness and the diet and the lack of health are clearly connected. Uh, and what you're doing in terms of your books and your education, everything else that you're doing, the speech and that you do, I mean, how... Help me understand that that piece.
0: Yeah, you know what's amazing about the human body is that it's really good at doing whatever you ask it to do. So if you ask the human body to eat a lot of garbage food, not move very much, right. be relatively inactive, it will get really good at doing that. If you ask the human body to uh, to to move frequently, to move with intention, to eat well, mm. to be uh, conscientious of, of 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 its its place in space, it gets very good at doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of very much believe in this notion of use it or lose it. And that there is no medical condition that does not benefit from a healthy relationship with food. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that necessarily we can reverse all illness or cure everything through the choices we make about how we eat. But I do believe that it's a zero risk approach to improving general health across the board, mm-hmm. and improving the body's ability to process whatever challenge may be coming our way. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to that end, I mean, I know that when I was really, really ill, it really took it took a lot of hard work on my behalf to be able to, to overcome my situation, but more importantly, it took the support of so many people. And many of those people, I didn't even know. They were people that were simply inspirational to me, people that I had seen go through similar struggles. I had read about them. I had read interviews, I'd read their books. Um, people like Dr. Terry Walls, she's an amazing, amazing woman who, uh, is one of the, one of the great examples of overcoming a disease like MS Mm -hmm. through, um, a protocol she's developed called the Walls protocol. She was hugely inspirational to me. Um, so many people that I've, I met along the way that had been through, through very, very similar struggles to what I was going through. And, had been disillusioned by the conventional medical community, um, and had found a path that that really was able to to work for them. Mm-hmm. So that you know that helped me, and in a sense, I feel a responsibility as well to to do anything that I can. And oftentimes, I think the best the best thing that I can do, uh, I, I, even more important than any advice that I could give anyone, or or um, or any kind of support I might be able to give anyone is just the hope that regardless of what your, your, your health situation is, there's always something that you can do about it. Mm-hmm. There's always something you can do to improve it. And that's very empowering because in, in so many ways in this country, we get very, I mean, and I think this is very particular, particular to this country. We, mm-hmm. we have this sense that we are um, at the mercy of the medical community and I think a lot of that is very much based on our tradition of allopathic medicine. Uh, I read a, an interesting uh, piece in the New York Times recently by a woman, who, an American woman who uh, is living in Germany and had a hysterectomy. And she had requested multiple times to have um, uh, painkillers, to, to take anti, um, anti-inflammatories, all of these things. And her doctors were very, very hesitant to prescribe anything. And they said, no, I want you to go home. And rest Mm -hmm. not rather than go home and don't do anything go home and rest actively rest and her her surgeon said it's important that you be with the pain and you experience this because that's part of the healing process Mm -hmm. and I think that we have uh, in in, in the United States we have a culture in which we we don't really like to be uncomfortable we want to be able to change our environment at any moment so that we don't experience discomfort and part of doing that is that we uh, we tend to we have a tendency one to over prescribe and then over prescribing um, that leads to many many other medical issues um and we, we become very disconnected from our health we yep. have sort of this anesthetized kind of dull relationship with our health i remember my grandmother who was from the uk as well mm-hmm. oh. uh, she used to always say to me when, you know as a kid i'd say oh I called her Mutti. Muti, I have a headache, I need an aspirin. And she would say, well, have you drunk, how much water have you drunk today? Absolutely right. That was her, that was always her answer. And she said, well, don't complain to me until you've drunk enough water. So we have this, we, we definitely have a bit of a, um, and I hate to say it, but I think a lot of the culture of, of not wanting to be dis- dis- uncomfortable in this, in this country is, right. is driven by the pharmaceutical industry. There's a lot of money to be made in masking, up, uh, how, masking how we feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that medicine doesn't have its place because I firmly believe it does. I just think that we need to be much more judicious about how we use um, uh, medicine in this country. When I say medicine, I mean uh, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, because I know that in my case, that was a big part of my illness. I mean, I was taking medication to deal with an aspect of my health, but really all it was doing immunosuppressants were just suppressing an aspect of my immune system that was dysfunctional rather than figuring out, okay, why is my immune system not functioning properly? So I,
1: I think I heard the answer to this in, in, you, in what you were saying just then, which is I don't think you're saying that there isn't a place, excuse the double negative. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not saying there isn't a place mm-hmm. for pharmaceuticals in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, right. multiple sclerosis, the flu. Right. Um, what you're saying is that there is a very much a connection though you can't just only focus on the pharmaceuticals there is there is a place for the whole puzzle to come together which includes your diet and exercise and everything else absolutely yeah
0: you know i think that for instance in the in the case of ra because that's the one that's the one illness that i'm most familiar with right it is a degenerative disease and um if you aren't able to turn around the degeneration that will lead to Long-term uh, physical uh, disfigurement, right. um, amongst other things. I do think that, and I see, for instance, if you're dealing with extreme, extreme acute inflammation, and I tell you to have some turmeric and some ginger, that's not going to do shit. I mean, you're you're going to be in pain. Right? The prednisone will take care of that there in you. that situation. Uh-huh. What what we want to try to do is to get people away from that state of just of of acute flare-up. Right. And that is in slowly, uh, trying to reduce that, that, that chronic inflammation over time in hopes that we don't end up in situations where you're, you know, you're in dire need. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think part of it is, we, you know, we, we really, it's a long process. And as you said, mentioned before, you know, I didn't wake up sick one day. It took a long time for me to get sick. And so I had to kind of accept that it was going to take a really long time for me to get healthy too. Yeah.
1: Where was your uh, grandmother from?
0: She was from London. Okay. Yeah.
1: She was from London. So does that mean you support a, a decent a London football club?
0: Oh, I don't, you know, I, I should I should be more of, I mean, I'm not a huge, I don't follow, um, uh, I don't follow British soccer nearly as much as I should. Just don't say Chelsea. I'm no, on. I didn't say Chelsea. I mean, I think if I were to say anything, I would say Man U, but there you that's, go. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, so uh, two conversations going here. One yep. is, the, one is the, the diet side of things. One is the exercise yeah. side of things. So let's pick on the on the diet side of things. Yeah. You've obviously focused a lot of your writing and your cooking and and what you talk about on that piece. So how has that helped you to to you know achieve yeah. these goals?
0: You know, I think that um, human beings we kind of got off the rails a long time ago, and uh, we we changed. We we became very disconnected from the nature in which we live, which right. is which is part of evolution. We are a part of of the fabric of of. Um, of, of this incredible planet. Right. And there is a plan that is much, much more complex and much more intelligent than we are. And that's part of the plan of, of, of how we eat. Um, and, and that's a plan that really is part of this evolutionary process that we're in. A squirrel doesn't need a dietician to tell it how to eat. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, humans do to a degree. We've gotten yeah. to a point where we're, we're disconnected from our, from our nature. And uh, I don't think that it's realistic at this point in 2018 to say, well, let's go back to some arbitrary moment in time 10,000 years ago, 25,000 years ago when humans had a better relationship with food. Um, but I do think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn by just going back to our grandmothers, for instance, who who probably had more of an intentional relationship with food than we did. I mean, if you go back uh, 50 years, someone in the family, usually the grandmother or the mother, um, spent at least half of her time thinking about food in mm-hmm. some capacity. And you go back even further, pretty much everybody in the family spent all of their time thinking about food. I mean, that was really, that is the, the one, um, reproduction and food cons- and food uh, uh, preparation or, or, or procurement are the two only basic needs that the humans have. Mm-hmm. So those have occupied the vast majority of our, of our um, energy for the majority of human time. It's only been very recently that in that we've we've kind of branched away from that to where we don't really even think about food that much anymore. Mm-hmm. It just food-like substances appear when we need them and oftentimes when we don't need them. And because they're there, we consume them. And we consume them without intention, we consume them without focus, without really understanding that, okay, you eat a bag of Fritos, that is not gonna kill you. That's not gonna cause any sort of, you know, immediate response. Maybe you might Possibly feel a little parched because of all the salt and you might possibly have a little bit of a stomachache afterwards But in reality nominal But what we don't understand is that that is a tiny laceration in our health and that decision Plus the next bad decision plus the next bad decision and suddenly we're in a we're in a position of ill health Mm -hmm. We've compromised our health we have um, We have allowed those these impulse decisions that don't have any immediate negative rec- uh, uh recourse uh to to brush them off like it's no big deal right and and that's where i think it's really for me it's very important to consider everything that i eat to the best of my ability i like to consider where it comes from mm-hmm. i like to consider um, how it was produced um, and i certainly consider what it means within my body because everything we eat becomes who we are so if you put garbage in, you're gonna get garbage out. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard that before, but yep. it's, it's a very true statement that, mm-hmm. and, and even more than you are what you eat, I believe you are what you eat, ate. Meaning that uh, it's not just the quality of the ingredients that you're consuming, but it's how those, in, those ingredients were, were raised. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, th- I think that uh, for me, we got very, I, I believe we got very off the rails when we started to switch to a, a very heavy carbohydrate-based diet. Um, and, uh, and you know, we used to, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, we ate when food was plentiful and we fasted when it wasn't right. And, uh, in many ways, our body really is well adapted to that. We have a system in which we can go if, if we don't eat a lot of carbohydrates and we don't eat sugar. Um, We have a system that can really allow us to tap into the calories that we carry on our body and to dip into ketosis and to be able to utilize those calories and then swing out of it when there's when there's uh, when there's more readily available calories to access. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are in a position now where we're constantly um, preparing and fattening up for a winter that's never really going to come
1: not if john snow has anything no. to do with it
0: winter's coming <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> that's right no we have a maybe the ill health of the white walkers that are coming for us mm. so, that's right exactly yeah.
1: i'm taking a break from the ben and bikes podcast to tell you more about dr Squatch natural soap for men made with natural ingredients from the earth like oils plants goat's milk greek yogurt and oatmeal Turn your post-ride shower game up to 11 and get ready to get out of the shower feeling alive. Ship straight to your door, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. And if you sign up for monthly automatic soap delivery, you'll get free shipping on all orders. Visit drsquatch.com, that's D-R-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H dot com for more details. And now back to this week's podcast. I'm sure this is um, much uh, better defined uh, by scientists, um, but I am a firm believer that you know we all grew up uh, in in Africa, um, uh, chasing wildebeest across Mm -hmm. the plains and and fighting lions and everything else. Mm -hmm. So there's a piece of our brain uh, which is still there, which requires that amount of excitement. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at certain conditions like depression, for example, it's literally because we're not exercising that yeah. small piece of our brain anymore. So that takes us onto the onto the cycling part, yeah. which for me replaces the gazelle mm-hmm. and the lion uh, in terms of excitement, in terms of exercise, in terms of you know adrenaline mm-hmm. rushes, for want of a better word. So uh, help us understand your connection with bicycles and, and working out and how that also connected yeah. back into your strategy.
0: My connection with bicycles is lifelong. Um, you know, I, I my first moment of freedom was was riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. The first moment of independence is riding a bicycle. There's something incredibly empowering about riding a bicycle. But you're totally right. There's the exhilaration. There's all of the the hormonal changes that go th- that happen in your body when you exert energy. Right. Um, and whether that means you're running from something or running at something, they're they're perhaps they're slightly different hormones, but they're but they're equally stimulating. Um, and for me, riding a bicycle certainly has that same capacity. It's, it's, it, you know, I, 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 ride any kind of bike I can and i right. and I was like, I'm frequently will ride a road bike in, in, in the woods and ride a mountain bike on the road. My, 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 um, my feeling is that the bike doesn't really care where it's ridden. It just wants to be ridden. Really not. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. But I, you know, I, I, for me, riding a bike is, is like play. And I think that's something that we get very disconnected from because we uh, we codify so many aspects of our life from uh, our meals. We you know you eat three meals at this specific time because that's what we're told we should do, right. and you exercise for forty five minutes at the gym doing this this specific movement. Right. Um, and you've kind of done that stuff. And there's no there's no fun there's no joy in eating that way, and there's no fun in in exercising that way. Um, and it's not to say that that's not good at times. But for me, riding a bike is really about, it's, it's transports me to being a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's an element uh, of, of play that, that I don't find elsewhere. The mountain bike is, is, takes it one step further um, in, in so much as I really consider that to be my meditation. Mm-hmm. When I'm riding a mountain bike in the woods, There, You you have no choice but to absolutely be in the moment. You Mm -hmm. have to be in that moment because if you're not, you're going to go over the handlebars. You're going to crash. You're going to hit a tree. Whatever's going to happen. You've got to you have to be really, really focused and be in that in that moment. Um, And it's really and it's such an soul kind of introspective uh, uh, sport versus when I'm riding on the road bike, it's much more social. I'm riding with my friends Mm -hmm. and connecting with with uh, with people that I I. Sometimes they're people I'm friends with um, outside of the cycling world, and sometimes they're just the, the the guys I ride with, and we're friends via bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so that movement is so important to me. And I think of it. You are mentioning that we were talking about nutrition and 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 movement. And to me, it's really the three-legged stool. It's it's uh, move, nourish, rest, yeah. recover. Yeah. Like all of those things together are so fundamental. Um, and with with good food comes good movement. With good movement comes good rest. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they're fundamental fundamentally uh, related. And and the bike is just something that has been for me, um, you know, I, I, I didn't ride for a really long time. When I got started to get sick, I stopped riding and I took a 12-year hiatus from riding the bike. And uh, I remember always looking at the bike and thinking, oh God, I wish I could ride my bike again. But every time I would try, I was just one if i would go on the bike to try to ride with somebody else i was so incredibly out of shape there's yeah. no way and then two i just felt terrible afterwards i mean i really hurt it was very very painful for me to ride the bike mm. and i certainly never thought i would ride a mountain bike the idea of like going off a drop off or riding through a single track or bunny hopping over a log or whatever it might be right. i thought there's no i could barely get out of bed let alone do that <laughs> so uh to be able to go back to that now and food being a fundamental part of being of getting me there but also the bike as well because it's really the bicycle is about momentum and health is about momentum. Yeah. When you get that momentum of good health, when you get that momentum of good decisions behind you, when you start making good choices, it becomes easier to make even better choices. Yeah. It's when you fall down the path of, uh, oh, fuck it, you know, whatever. I, so I'm going to eat pizza now. I already feel like crap. I might as well then it just spirals into more and more negativity. And yeah. so it's, you know, we, I, I've mentioned this a lot, and I think it's really important. We talk about illness being contagious. I really firmly believe that health is even more contagious, that when you make positive decisions, it becomes easier to make more positive decisions. Yeah. And when you make positive decisions about your health, it affects everyone around you. and encourages them to also make positive decisions.
1: Yeah. So we're here in your fantastic apartment here in the Bronx. In Brooklyn, Brooklyn, my friend. Uh, in Brooklyn. Be close. So yeah, we're, the not Bronx. The Bronx.
0: we're not in the Bronx. We're in Brooklyn.
1: I'm really embarrassed by that. That's all right. Because you They're said that close. you, I asked you to correct me if I said oh, anything yeah. wrong in my introduction. Yeah, well, and I know what you New Yorkers are like. I'm going to be hunted down <laughs> uh, when I as soon as this goes out, I'll get death threats. So that's we're right. in we're in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. We're in your amazing apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right by the Brooklyn Bridge, yeah. which I suppose is a bit of a giveaway. That was the giveaway. I'm <laughs> sorry, the- <laughs> you're, you're, to be, you're forgiven. <laughs> so, how do you uh, how do you exercise and get out on a bike uh, here?
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing. New York is actually a very very um, bike friendly bike friendly city. Mm-hmm. Um, so during the week uh i'm about four miles from prospect park which is a three and a half mile loop mm-hmm. um and so we'll go and do laps there and that's good for just doing uh, during intervals and stuff like that right. um or else from right over the bridge i can cruise over the bridge to the west side and then take the west side highway bike path huh. all the way to the george washington bridge and then jump over that into um into new jersey and there's some beautiful roads there which is the classic new york city um road bike ride and then outside of the city within just a you know a 30 minute drive from the city there's fantastic riding um both mountain bike riding and road riding gravel riding i mean i was i was upstate um over the weekend and i did a, a 50 mile gravel ride um right out the door and it was very you know right there beautiful roads nice. plenty of climbing so there's a lot of really good riding around here and certainly from a mountain biking standpoint it's some of the most challenging riding technical riding you'll find anywhere hmm. um I, I love when i ride in the East Coast with friends from out West because they're like, oh, there's no good riding here. And then we take them on, on some of the stuff that we have in northern New Jersey and, and right. even even just in Westchester County. And people are amazed by how challenging and technical it is. Uh,
1: Jen and uh, Charlie Cooper, will mm-hmm. be very pleased to yeah. hear that. Uh, I'll take that back to Colorado and exactly. Boulder with me. Uh, Jen and Charlie, if you're listening, he was telling the truth, I think. So you should uh-huh. come and ride out here if you haven't done so already. In fact, you probably have knowing you too. Um, fantastic. So, um, what's uh, what's in your bike stable? I've seen a couple of bikes here in your, uh, your oh yeah, we have a lot so. of bikes. So there,
0: there's yeah. let's see. I can t- walk you through all of them if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so I have uh, a Speedwagon um, town bike there. So it's yeah. a, got an internal two speed hub. Yeah. Um, then there's an S Works Epic uh, dual suspension mountain bike. Um, I have an Allied uh, Alpha. Uh, road bike. And then I have an S-Works Crux cross bike hanging on the wall here. And yep. then I have a, um, an S-Works Tarmac, um, which is in the shop right now. And then upstate, I've got an S-Works stump jumper and a uh, Cannondale scalpel and a, uh, another um, Tarmac uh, Pro with disc brakes and I have a mosaic titanium gravel bike that's on its way. That should be here next week. Oh, very nice. So, and then I've got a few town bikes as
1: well. So one of my original podcasts was with uh, with the Velominati. I don't uh-huh. know if you've sure, come sure, across them. Okay, harden the fuck up. Being rule yeah, number, yeah, whichever yeah. one it is. So N
0: minus one. N minus one, right? Yes. Or N plus one, isn't it? Or either. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> Whereby N is the number of bikes from which your partner would leave you. <laughs> or the number of bikes you have plus one. But there you go. Yeah. Okay.
1: So uh, that all... Or uh, we'll connect. So, um, uh, just to finish this piece of the, of the podcast interview, uh, I'm someone uh, who um, is overweight. I'm just def- I'm defining someone uh-huh. that that might be listening to this podcast. Okay. Not well, I'm a little yeah. bit overweight, but not that much. Overweight. <laughs> I was going to say I so, don't look overweight. Yeah. So that. Uh, so I'm I'm overweight. Right. Um, I, I haven't worked out. I've got a, I've got a crappy diet. Yeah. I'm feeling bad. I'm just don't know how, just like you were saying, I'm yeah. looking at the bike, but I just don't want to get back on it because mm-hmm. it's going to suck for, for a little while. Um, what advice would you give that person?
0: You know, there's, um, there's so many wonderful statements like the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Right. Um, but I would, I would go to, uh, when I was, when I was a kid growing up, um, my, my grandfather's best friend was a guy named Tatsuo and Tatsuo was, um, was he and my grandfather were, were in World War II together? They were both in in uh, in Burma for four years, mm. and or for three years. And Tatsuo was a was an interpreter who was Japanese American. He was born in Okinawa but then raised in California. Um, and at the onset of the war, he pretty much had two choices: either go into an internment yeah. camp or go into the military. Right. And he met my my grandfather in the military, and they became lifelong friends. And Tatsuo later studied um, uh, Japanese gardening, and he became a gardener. Uh, and when I was a kid, I would visit my grandparents in California, and, uh, and I would spend time with Tatsu whenever he was working in the garden. And one day, I remember I was really young. I was probably nine years old, and he was in the garden, and he was on his hands and knees, and he was gardening, and he was crawling backwards as he gardened. And I asked him, I said, Tatsu-san, why are you working backwards like that? And he put his trowel down and kind of wiped his hands off and looked at me, and he said, well, simple. Simple. That way I can only look at everything that I've accomplished and never look at the seemingly insurmountable, insurmountable task ahead. Yeah. And so that that's something that I've taken with me. And I I, I try to, as best as I can, um, always use that as a, it's sort of like the countdown timer when you're working out. It's easier to be counting down than to be counting up because mm-hmm. you're coming down to zero. And if you can right. hold that plank for just 10 more seconds and even holding plank, for instance, for three minutes or five minutes might seem impossible until you break it up into chunks and parcels that are doable, they're mm. chewable, if you will. Yeah. Um, in uh, in 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 like in CrossFit, for instance, they call it chipping. If you're chipping away at something, if you have a hundred reps to do, break it down into reps of five. Do five, take a rest. Do five, take a rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I think that it's really important, and it certainly was important for me when I was getting healthy and, and, and turning my life around to say, all right, I'm going to ride five miles today, and then I'm going to make sure that until I ride five miles again tomorrow, I'm going to make as many positive decisions as I can. Rather than saying, "Okay, I, I exercise now, I'm going to reward myself with a pint of ice cream and a pizza," I'm going to continue the positive the the, the positive momentum and say, "I'm going to eat a really healthy salad. Um, I'm not going to drink alcohol tonight, and I'm going to go. I'm going to read and go to bed early." Mm-hmm. And then it became easier the next day to wake up and say, you know, I was going to ride five miles today, but fuck it, I'm going to ride 10. There you go. And then go out and ride 10 miles. And then guess what? I'm even more motivated to eat a healthy lunch. And I'm even more motivated to forego having beers with my friends that night and, and to, to read and go to sleep earlier. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have beers with your friends and you shouldn't have pizza and you shouldn't have have ice cream, but, um it it really is about getting yourself to a place in which you feel as though you can do that without sacrificing your health goals right uh and that you know sometimes the healthiest thing can be having beer with your friends socializing not getting so hung up on on stressing out so much about about your food and your fitness and your health and all that um but i do think for if you're dealing with a with a chronic issue it's really important to take it seriously and to get your to get your health on an even keel as best as you can, yeah, and uh, and and so that kind of means a cleaning out period, mm-hmm. and a reevaluation and a reprioritization, yeah. um, And until uh, you know, until if you are struggling, until you prioritize your health, nobody else can do that for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Um, a, a quick question on a future podcast is: mm-hmm. uh, I saw that you have a Wahoo or Cyclops ops training yeah. in your uh, office there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I believe you're a Zwift Zwifter. Yeah. Uh, how much do you, do you use that?
0: What? Uh, not as much this year as I would have liked to. I had a nasty crash. In, I saw that. In, right. uh, I was going to ask
1: you about yeah, that. Yeah. I had yeah. a
0: nasty crash in Umbria in October mm. and I had surgery on both of my shoulders. Mm. So I it's... It's taken me a while to get back on the bike. I've only just started riding again. Uh. Um, so I've, I've ridden Swift a few times this year. Last year, I rode it much more through the winter. It is a total game changer, um, particularly in New York City when it's really yeah. cold. And, you know, I, I rode this weekend and it was cold out. And it, I realized it took me probably 25 minutes just to get dressed. <laughs> not not forget about even like getting the bike out and getting everything right. together, but just, yeah. just to put on the right. thousands of layers exactly that you put on. Um <laughs> I'm always amazed you know it's two base layers arm warmers jersey right gilet, jacket <laughs> bibs yeah three pairs of socks That's so right. um zwift is zwift kind of makes it easy and that you just have to put on your bibs and you can wear a t-shirt or you can wear a no shirt if you shirt, want to right. be a rock star exactly. um and uh and you can then go out and and, and ride and compete against other people yeah uh, so it's it's a really it's a it's been a game changer for yeah. for so many people it's really Couldn't, agree more. Couldn't agree more okay
1: uh, this section uh, is designed to be uh, one question, quick answer. Okay. All right. Who taught you to ride a bike? Uh, my brother. Where were you when you first learned to ride a bike? Vermont. Uh, what was your first bike that you rode? Um,
0: it was, and I can picture it, but I have no idea it. It may have been a rally, mm. and it was like I'm. It, it was. It was a one speed with a coaster brake, but it had drop bars and was meant to look like a, like a 10 speed. Got it. Uh,
1: at, if I was to look at your Strava account, how many miles would you say that you did last year?
0: Uh, 4,800
1: maybe. Nice job. Uh, and what is the best ride that you have ever been on?
0: Oh man, I have to say it was uh, doing La Ruta de los Conquistadores in in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. I did it with um, with uh, my brother and my friend Jim, my friend Dirk, who's from Colorado, mm-hmm. Lucas User, who's from Colorado, um, and we we uh, we did the ride. It was a race across Costa Rica, and it was the it was. Um, a year after getting off of all my meds, mm. and uh, I was still overweight. Very it cool. was still very hard, but you know we did it. And these guys it's got me across the finish line. It a was a brutal ride. Oh yeah, three days, yeah. twenty nine thousand feet of climbing, yeah. all off road. Yeah. What's Dirk's last name? Uh, uh, Dirk Shaw.
1: Oh, I know yeah. a Dirk Sorensen in Colorado. Okay. He's also he's he's done the Leadville race uh-huh. uh, five times. I think.
0: Oh okay. Doing it
1: again this year. Another future podcast that I have. i yes, <laughs> exactly. Talking to the Leadville guys. Um, well, fantastic. Uh, Seamus Mullin, thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. Uh, for being a generous host here in uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, you got it right. It's close. <laughs> it's another B borough. There you go. How far yeah. are the Bronx from here? Oh, well, they're a long ways away. Okay. Yeah. So we'll move on from that question. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for being on the Ben and Bikes podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. Good stuff.
2: We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Ben and Bikes podcast. You'll find this and many other episodes about athletes, authors, filmmakers, and community organizers, all with a story to tell about bikes by visiting benandbikes.com. Thank you for listening. We'd sure appreciate it if you could rate and review the Ben and Bikes podcast wherever you listen. We appreciate your support and thanks for helping us connect with other bike enthusiasts. If you have a bike story to tell, email us, ben at benandbikes.com.